Well, the the Olympics is encouraging everyone to be faster, even running off the platform. So that's that's good. That's a fast exit. Uh, Crestwick best. Uh, We're going to be reading from uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 29 through 54. Luke 11, uh, 29 through 54. This is the word of God. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them, For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it, then, that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. 
Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Before we uh, consider this passage together, uh, let's bow in prayer. Our Father, you are uh, a great God. Uh, You are uh, the everlasting rock. And we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name that you are a God who saves. You are a God of mercy and a God of compassion. And we thank you for uh, the great gift of Christ, the great gift of his atonement and uh, his triumphant resurrection. Lord, we would ask this morning that you would let your light shine forth, that you would heal our eyes so we can see. Lord, we pray that in your grace you will help us to see what we need to do to avoid uh, these woes and curses that your son pronounced against religious people who didn't really know you, whose hearts were not right, and who hid their sin through their religious practices. Father, I pray that you will truly, in the purity of your glory, so shine your light into our hearts that uh, sin will be exposed and repented of, and that we will truly walk in light as you are in the light. Lord, we ask for wisdom in uh, today and also in the future as we make decisions. Lord, we ask more than anything that you will make us uh, the kind of people that we ought to be. Uh, We trust that you will lead us as we make uh, decisions, but Lord, we want our hearts to be right. Uh, We want to be a holy and a pure people. Father, we want to be a people who reach this city and the world for Christ. And Lord, to accomplish this, we know that we need your spirit. So fill us even now with your spirit, Uh, help him to, or send him to help us to understand you better and to cherish you more and to live out the implications of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, last week in the previous text, we saw that Jesus was quite active in confronting the powers of darkness, rolling back the kingdom of Satan, and even in casting out evil spirits. And all of that was a sort of historical reality. That was simply what was taking place in the life of Jesus at that time. But we also saw, interestingly enough, the human response that some opponents of Jesus had. They couldn't deny his power. They couldn't deny that he had cast out spirits. But what they were doing was they were questioning the authority that he had. Where did his power come from? And so what they were saying was, listen, his power doesn't come from God. His power comes from Satan himself. And Jesus, of course, responds to this. He refutes their arguments and he demonstrates that what he is doing could only be possible through the finger of God, through the power of God, especially and supernaturally at work. 
But what that scene does and what the following scenes that we're looking at today do is they show us that Jesus can provide us with all kinds of evidence for who he is and we can still reject him. In fact, one of the great mistakes that people make is people assume that if God just did enough to satisfy their own curiosity, if God just sort of gave them a personally tailored sign just for them, then they would submit. A great philosopher, uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, logical uh, empiricist you know, around the turn of the last century, early 19. Hundreds, uh, one of the one of Britain's greatest philosophers, uh, he argued that you know, there just wasn't enough evidence for the existence of God, and he said that if he had to stand before God on the day of judgment, what he would say is, if God said, "Why didn't you believe in me?" He would say, well, "I would say uh, my reply would be, not enough, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence." And so his personal view was that God simply hadn't provided him, Bertrand Russell, with enough evidence for Russell to have belief. And yet if you read Russell's philosophical arguments against the existence of God, his famous essay, Why I Am Not a Christian, for example, what you find is that Russell's argumentation when it comes to the uh, non-existence of God is very, very thin and very, very poor compared to all of his arguments in other philosophical areas. In other words, what you find is someone who's sort of desperately trying to concoct rationalizations for not accepting the validity of the Christian religion. It's very poor, a very sort of second or even third-rate philosophy. And so you look at this, you say, well, what's the problem? The problem isn't that Bertrand Russell doesn't have a great intellect, and the problem isn't a lack of evidence. The problem isn't intellectual at all. The problem is fundamentally ethical. The problem is a heart disposition that likes darkness rather than light. You must always remember that. Uh, When it comes down to searching out truth, as human beings, we have a natural predisposition to reject God's truth because we are more at home in sort of a world where we're not accountable to anyone who's an ultimate authority in our lives. And this is the great condemnation that John tells us about in his gospel. Light comes into the world, but people prefer darkness rather than light. It's an emotional choice. It's an ethical predisposition. They want to live a certain way. They don't want to live in submission to God. And because of that, the darkness of their heart then causes them to interpret all of the evidence and all of the data in a way which has already presupposed that God will not be the conclusion of the investigation. So here in verse 29, we're told the crowds increase and people are asking for a sign. And if you've been working through the Gospels up until now, you realize that Jesus has already done everything he possibly can do to show them who he really is. And people are still rejecting him and rejecting him and rejecting him. And so then Jesus says, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. 
Now, in Matthew's gospel, he fills this out a little bit to say that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the earth. In other words, Jonah is in some ways resurrected or brought back to life from the great fish. Jesus is going to be literally resurrected from the tomb. And so as Jonah was a sign, Jesus is going to be a sign, and the sign of Jesus in the resurrection is far greater than anything that occurred in the life of Jonah. And so what Jesus is saying here in verses 29 through 32 is that he has come and he has done absolutely everything anyone could ask of him in terms of revealing his nature, revealing his character, and showing that he really is the Son of God in human flesh. And the condemnation, the reason why he can say to his generation that they are a wicked generation is because you had people in history who repented with less evidence and with less greatness. So the Ninevites, people who were had nothing to do with the Old Testament, who had nothing to do with God's covenant, who were actually sort of the epitome of organized wickedness uh, at that point in history. Like some, some historians and scholars have said that, you know, Assyria, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. They say that uh, Assyria, for lots of decades in its history, was really run more like a, you know, a mafia town you know, than an organized political system. You know, it was almost like this sort of organized crime syndicate, uh, mob bosses who were always in charge of what was going on. Uh, so in the Old Testament prophets, when God brings judgment against Nineveh, says, woe to you, the city of blood. And he describes the whips cracking on the backs of the slaves, people oppressed, people mistreated and abused in every way. Uh, Nineveh, Nineveh and the Assyrians, when they were successful in battle, they'd often mutilate their foes, you know, cut off hands and noses and all sorts of things. And yet God sends a prophet to Nineveh, this city of wickedness, to tell them to repent. And Jesus says, they did. Jonah, the person who didn't even want to go and preach, Jonah, the person who would rather die than see the Ninevites repent and come to faith in God, is the God, is the person that God sends to preach. He goes reluctantly, he tries to flee the other way, he doesn't want them to repent, he wants his message to fail. Very interesting (laughs) to be called to do something and you don't want your message to be successful, but it is. And then he's angry and the Ninevites repent and Jesus says to his generation, what more can I do for you? How hard can your hearts be that you have God incarnate here in front of you, doing all of these things, teaching you these things, showing you God. And you just keep saying, oh, give me more signs. Give me more evidence. Give me more. As on the day of judgment, the Ninevites will rise and condemn you because they repented with far less than what you have. The queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, came to listen to Solomon from the ends of the earth. And one greater than Solomon is here. So this is a very strong claim. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, in all of history, there has never been a greater person than I am. In all of history, no people have ever seen a more persuasive and compelling and obvious revelation from God than what you are seeing when you see me. 
And we know that because of the doctrine of Scripture, because of the Holy Spirit's inspiration of the Word of God, that even in the Gospels, although we don't see Jesus in the flesh and we don't hear his voice with our physical ears, the revelation we have of Jesus in the Gospels is not less than the revelation that people had when they saw him in time and space history. And so we are just as accountable to God when we have his word as anyone ever was who is actually there to see Jesus incarnate in time and space history. And so if we continue to reject Jesus, then our condemnation is equal to that of the people of his day. We must take that very, very seriously. Jesus has revealed to us who God is. He is greater than everyone who has gone before and who has come after then he teaches in verses 33 and 36 about light and darkness and blindness. That's really what's going on here. When people are asking for a sign, they're saying, show us something we can see. Give us proof. And so then Jesus says, well, I've already given you all the proof that you need. And I'll do something even more climactic with my resurrection and you still won't believe. But then he starts talking about light and darkness and blindness. Why is it that people refuse to see what's so clearly in front of them? And Jesus uses this metaphor of blindness. And it's really very obvious. It doesn't matter how much light there is in a room if you're blind. You can increase the lumens, you can increase, you know, the intensity, you can, you know, add light bulbs. It just doesn't make any difference at all. If you're blind, if your eyes aren't healthy, as Jesus says, then the light is not going to do you any good. It doesn't make any difference if you're walking around in the dead of night. It doesn't make any difference if it's broad noon. You can't see. And so what Jesus is saying here is, listen, if there's something wrong, sort of metaphorically or by analogy, with your physical eyes, then you can't see anything in sort of external physical reality. But if there's something wrong with your spiritual eyes, if your spiritual eyes aren't healthy, then you're going to be filled with darkness. The light of God can shine on you, but it doesn't penetrate. It's deflected. It goes into eyes that are incapable of seeing. And so one of the things that we need to do, because in verse 35, notice this, see to it then that the light within you is not darkness. So what Jesus is saying here is, this isn't fatalism. In other words, you can't say, well, you can't sort of sit back and say, well, I can't see, so that's the end of it. See to it then, that's a command, that the light within you is not darkness. In other words, you have a moral obligation before God to make sure that your spiritual eyes are healthy. You have a moral, spiritual obligation to the Creator to ensure that you see who He is properly. If you are living in darkness, if you are outside of the light of God, it is not because He has failed to shine His light upon you. It is not because He has not sent His light in His Son into the world. It is not because Jesus Christ has not revealed and illumined who God is. It is because you refuse to see. And so you have a moral obligation before God to search out and to humble yourself and to beseech him in prayer to open the eyes of your heart so that you can see. That's what we are called to do. We are called to investigate. We are called to search. We are called to study. And this is one of the things that I, I am absolutely convinced of today. I'm absolutely convinced that there could be nothing more important 
then the great question of whether or not there is a God, what this God may require of us, whether this God has revealed himself to us. I mean, what are we doing here in the universe? What's the point of it all? And so people will spend, the Olympics is a a great example of this, and I, I love the Olympics in many ways. But here you have people who dedicate their entire lives to certain athletic disciplines. And yet it is like just impossible today, it seems, to get people to dedicate like 15 minutes to actually thinking about the purpose and the point of life. To get people to actually seriously consider whether or not they where they stand before God. To actually truly stop and say, you know what? I'm not just going to dismiss the possibility that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. I'm going to look into it. Maybe that's something worth doing with my time. Maybe it's important to look at these things. Maybe it's really, really important to figure out if Jesus was who he said he is. And and you say those sorts of things and people's eyes kind of glaze over and, and they go, well, that, well, that, that might be hard. <laughs> yes. Yes. Getting to the Olympics is probably hard. You know, but we dedicate ourselves to whatever it is that's important to us. And yet these great questions of life, we just won't take the time to truly investigate. So I'm absolutely convinced that most people will say, you know, this is all a bunch of nonsense. I say, well, well, how much serious attention have you given it? Because it seems really easy just to write it off without without an honest attempt to look into the evidence that God has provided for us. If... In any way, and I mean this, if, if you're someone, you're here today, and you're, you're not, just not sure about the plausibility or, or the validity of you know, the Bible or Christian claims, I would be more than happy to sit down and, and chat with you. Now, not, not to have a debate, not to have a fight, but if you're honestly interested in showing why, why do Christians believe this stuff, then I'd love nothing more uh, than to sit down with you and to chat about some of these things. Or if you're talking with someone, who has lots of questions about the Christian faith. You feel like you're maybe not not sure exactly how to answer all of them. I don't have all of the answers either, but I'll be more than happy to sit down with you and, and chat with some of the about some of these issues. There is good reason for believing what we believe in the grace of God, and nothing could be more important than figuring out the truth or the falsity of the claims of Jesus Christ. The problem in our society is people just don't bother to take the time. So Jesus says these things. And then a Pharisee invites him over for a meal. And the Pharisee is surprised that Jesus doesn't first wash his hands. Now this has nothing to do with cleanliness. Although I must admit, after coming back from Cuba, and I did wash my hands there, <laughs> but is uh, a reminder, you know, washing your hands, Purell, all those sorts of things, hand sanitizer. It's a really, really good idea. In fact, using Purell hand sanitizer was one of the two pieces of advice that George W. Bush gave to Barack Obama when Obama was becoming the president. Uh, George, President Bush said to him, listen, you're going to want to use Purell or you're going to end up with a lot of colds. That's a true story. Uh, it was one of the, one of the two things, uh, one of the two bits of advice, you know, use, use hand sanitizer. Uh, this is what the Pharisees are concerned about. 
They, they don't have a well-developed, you know, germ theory of disease at this point in history. So that's not their worry. Their worry is about ceremonial cleanliness. And so you wash to make sure that you don't have external defilement that ends up inside of you. And then the Lord said to him in verse 39, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now, this is a rather strong thing to say to your host. You foolish people. And this is not just being silly. This is drawn from Old Testament wisdom literature, where being a fool is someone who is morally deficient before God. You foolish people did not the one who made the outside make the inside also. But now as for what is inside, you be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Now, what's the connection here with with the Pharisees, you know, saying that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan, with the crowds asking for more of us for more signs, with Jesus teaching about darkness? There's a chronological connection that he's invited over for dinner, but there's also a thematic connection here. In other words, one of the last great hiding places, perhaps the most dangerous of all, one of the last great refuges for spiritual blindness is in religion. Because you can sort of play around the surface of things without actually getting to the heart of them. And I am convinced one of the, one of the greatest dangers in the church are people who have been inoculated to the gospel. You know, you know they, they've had the, the injection. They've had a bit of it come into them through church and through Sunday school and through youth group or through whatever it is. You know, they've had a bit of the, the emotion. You know, they, they've maybe said a prayer and asked Jesus into their heart, although that really isn't biblical language. We need to be very careful when we talk about that in terms of conversion. Uh, you know, nowhere in Scripture you say, you know, ask Jesus into your heart. They, that, that, that can stand for something, but it, just the way it's stated, you have to be really careful. Uh, just with sort of holding that up as the way to become a Christian. Say, well, I did that. I went to camp or whatever. And, and, and you have this sort of anemic kind of weak strain of Christianity that you've sort of imbibed a little bit and you're not really against it. And so you just kind of, there, there's no fire, there's no passion, but it's just sort of, you know, yeah, yeah, it's part of my life and, and I believe and, and just, it, and it's nothing is what it is. There's no reality to it. There's no heart to it. Because when Jesus Christ comes into someone's life, he he gets a hold of their life. And the person isn't the same. And there begins to be transformation. And there begins to be zeal and fruit and passion for Jesus. Yes, there's ebb and flow. And yes, we fall. And I'm not disputing any of that. But there is a trajectory in life which is unmistakable when the reality of the gospel is present in a person. And so in our churches and in Jesus' day, there are all kinds of people who, they don't mind showing up for a service every once in a while. They don't mind giving a little bit of money every once in a while. They don't mind doing all of these religious activities every once in a while, but there's no heart transformation. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You who are religious are also spiritually blind and you don't see. It's not the outside, it's the inside. See, and the great thing about, or the great danger about religion is that it's all external acts. See, I can, I can tabulate and figure out that if I need to give 10% of my money to God, I can give 10% of my money, my money to God. I can just write a check. 
Okay, that's not a that's not a spiritual thing. That's a mathematical thing, right? If I can figure out what ten percent of whatever my income is, I can give that away, and I can do that without any heart change whatsoever. I'm just following the rules. Or if I'm supposed to pray three times a day, then I can pray three times a day. That's really not very difficult. I just need to set my my timer. When it goes off, I pray. I've done my duty, and I move on. And so there's all kinds of people all over the world whose lives revolve around certain religious rituals at certain times of the day and at certain times of the year. Islam is a fantastic example of this. And so this is not an uncommon thing. In fact, this is the pervasive heart of rebellion against God when it's sort of translated into religious uh, currents. Because it basically says, you know what, God, I can do enough on my own apart from your grace to make it. Give me the rules, I'll follow them, and everything will be fine. And that's really what tons of people are doing uh, today. But what Jesus says, first of all, is listen, it's not about the outside, it's about the inside. It's not about what you do, although that's important, it's about why you do it. What's your end goal? What's your motivation? What are you trying to accomplish? What drives you? What's actually in your heart? And so when Jesus says you're full of greed, and the the antidote to that is to be generous to the poor, he's not saying, he's not setting up another legalistic rule. So he's not saying, well, if you just give enough of your money away, then everything will be clean for you. He's talking about an internal disposition, a transformation in your life so that you who used to be covetous and greedy, who wanted more and more and more for yourself, are now someone, as it says, in, as Paul describes in the book of Ephesians, who used to be a thief. And Paul in Ephesians says, you who used to steal must steal no longer. Okay, That's good. That's a good Christian rule. If you used to be a thief, stop. Okay, pretty basic. But then he goes on and says, and you must get a job. Great. This is Western capitalism at its best. You know, stop being a thief and get a job. So that, so why do you have a job? So that you may have something to give to those who are in need. Amazing. So that you may have something to give to those who are in need. So my job is not in the first place for me to just be able to amass more and more and more for me. It's that I am not a burden to anyone else. And then so that I actually can give to people when they have needs. That's why God has given me a job. It's an amazing thing. And notice the transformation in that though. The thief used to not work and used to take what a worker had earned. But now the thief earns for him, the person who used to be a thief earns for himself to give it away. Total transformation in how they approach life. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. Stop being greedy, looking for more and more for yourself. Start being generous. Start demonstrating this internal change. Woe to you. And when Jesus says woe in this section, it refers to, you know, coming judgment. Judgment is coming upon you because you give God a tenth of your mint, etc., but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. In other words, the, the, the Pharisees are being scrupulous about tithing. They will even take 10% of, you know, their garden herbs and give them to the temple. They, they, they won't have anything 
that, that grows anywhere that they won't give 10% of. And Jesus says that simply is not pleasing to God. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't tithe. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be generous in, in your offerings and give to God. Jesus here endorses continuing to be very generous with your finances to the work of the Lord and to the kingdom of God. In fact, I would argue that in the new covenant, um, if, the, if in the old covenant we were to be, they, they were forced to tithe, whether rich or poor, in the new covenant, uh, 10%, even though it's not a law, 10% is probably about a minimal baseline for where to begin when it comes to looking at your financial situation before the Lord. Uh, I wouldn't say that that's the maximum. I'd say that's sort of more of the minimum because God will take care of you. And in the new covenant, it seems that the principle is more and more and more that instead of owing God less than we owed him in the old covenant, we owe him more as a response of gratitude because of all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. But notice you can write, you can tithe and neglect love and justice. In other words, the two greatest commandments, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments. And you can be fooling around with religious laws and miss the whole heart of that whole covenant. And you can be fooling around with tithing, thinking that if you just are meticulous enough with doing your math properly, then God will be pleased to you. And yet your heart can be so far away from where God is, from where Jesus is, from where your fellow man is, that you're completely inviscerating the whole point of God's covenant revelation. Love God. Take care of each other. Do what's right. That's what God is interested in. If you do that, the other details, the tithing and the rest, that'll take care of itself. You don't start with the law, you start with the heart. And as the heart is transformed, our behavior will be transformed too. Woe to you, you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. In other words, they just love social honor. They love to be recognized. They, they love to be important. You know, they love to be called teacher. They love to be called doctor. They love to be called professor. They love to be called reverend. They love to be called whatever. They love it. And I will say, in, this is a very, this, this is a very real danger for all of us. To love applause. To want a reputation, to want to be somebody. This is a huge problem for the human heart in pride and recognition. Um, and just as an aside, historically, I think it is absolutely preposterous for ordained pastors to ever be called reverend. I, I haven't tracked that through history long. I don't, I don't know exactly when it was introduced uh, into our nomenclature in the church, uh, but there is there is no person. Uh, who should be called reverend. Uh, there's no person who should be revered in any sense. Uh, that's Anyway, I'll, I'll leave that off to the side. I mean, you can revere me, just don't say it. Right? <laughs> it doesn't need to be my title, it's just obvious. Uh, woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. In cemeteries were considered unclean, they were defiling, and so here the Pharisees are consi- they're considered graves that you don't even know they're there. They make you unclean and you don't even know it. That's how subtle their teaching is. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Sticking up for his buddies. Maybe not the best choice at that moment in time. So Jesus turns to them directly. 
You experts in the law, woe to you. You load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. This is a context. There's a context here that Jesus is talking about. But listen, this could apply so widely in our churches, particularly our conservative churches, uh, of which we would be sort of, we would slot into that sort of conservative evangelical framework and rightly so. But in a lot of conservative evangelical churches in history, there has been a fundamentalism that has stressed long lists of do's and don'ts. And that's how you measure spirituality. That's how you measure your walk with God. It's do this and do this and don't do that and don't do that. And usually the don'ts are much longer than the do's. And, you know, there's this sort of whole law system, most of which isn't even biblical, which has been assumed and then imposed on people by leaders and pastors who are very legalistic. And so you just hammer people about whether or not they're measuring up to your man-made list of rules. But when you do that, you're not helping anybody because you're not empowering anybody with grace. You're not empowering anybody with the forgiveness of God. You're not empowering anybody with liberty in the spirit. And so Jesus is saying, here, you know, you're just imposing this whole system of rules on people, but you're not giving them the help they need. What they need is grace and the Holy Spirit of God. And we must not think that that is not a problem in this time in history. In verses 47 through 51, killing the prophets. Killing the prophets. The hypocrisy of their their forefathers killing the prophets and this generation building the tombs of the prophets. Now, this is probably a metaphor it doesn't mean that they're literally building tombs for the prophets. After all, the prophets have been dead for centuries. Okay? So the prophets are already buried, or they have no idea where their bodies are. So they're not, they're not actually building tombs to put these, the bodies of these prophets who died centuries and centuries before in. But it, it's, a, it's a metaphor for veneration. It, it's a metaphor for, for saying that they... they show their respect. They talk about you know, the prophets and how much honor they have for them. It's like they build a memorial for the prophets, you know, with their words. And yet Jesus says, listen, all the blood of all of those prophets, from Abel to Zechariah, and that's not sort of an A to Z. Uh, it's based on actually the, the old, the Hebrew Old Testament is configured differently from our English Old Testament. So that the Hebrew Old Testament actually ends with Second Chronicles. Okay? And so, in that configuration, Abel is the first person whose blood is shed. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, Zechariah is the last person whose blood is shed. So what Jesus is saying is that throughout all of the Old Testament, everyone whose blood was shed, all of that blood is going to really be held, uh, the accountability for it is really here in this generation. Now why? How's that fair? It's because something greater than Jonah and Solomon is here. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to kill me. You're going to kill the greatest prophet. You're going to kill the Son of God incarnate. You're going to kill the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so if other generations were wicked for putting to death the prophets, how much more wicked are you for putting me to death? And how hypocritical your words are. You say that you honor the prophets, but you're going to kill me. You know, the only way you can honor the prophets is to obey me and my word because they were pointing forward to me and my word. And here I am. And look at how you're treating me. The way that you're treating me is proof positive. You would have treated the prophets no better than your forefathers did. So here you are, priding yourself and preening your feathers on how much you respect God's spokesman. 
And I am God in the flesh. And look at what you're doing to me. Rejecting me, dishonoring my word, and you are going to put me to death. And in this great condemnation, woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Taken away the key to knowledge. What a damning indictment that is. There is truth. God is not whoever you want him to be. He is one way and not other ways. He is who he is. And my imagination and speculation doesn't change who he is one bit. What I think about Jesus Christ does not change who Jesus Christ is one bit. And so my responsibility is to see God as he is, to learn about Jesus, who he is, to respond to the Jesus who is the real Jesus, not a figment of my imagination, to make him more comfortable and domesticated to serve me and just sort of be my buddy through life or whatever it is. To take away the key of knowledge. You yourself, Jesus says, you're not going in. And you are keeping other people from going in too. How frightening that is. To be someone who may reject knowledge yourself and then in your rejection of it, lead other people away from it so that they are lost as well. That's one of the reasons why I insist that if I ever say anything that contradicts this book, you immediately side with this book and not me. Because this is the key of knowledge. This is God's light. This is God's revelation. And at best, any human being is, is a fallible, finite interpreter of it. And we do our best to be faithful to it and to understand it and unpack it together. But it is the word of God and not the author and not the, you know, the, the radio personality and not the guy with the most podcasts. It is the word of God that is the key that is central to knowledge. That's why you are responsible to know it. Not just what people have told you about it. You are responsible to know it. Knowledge of the word of God is not transferable. It doesn't matter if your parents know it. It doesn't matter if your siblings know it. It doesn't matter if your kids know it or your grandkids know it. You are responsible for your own knowledge. It doesn't matter if your spouse knows it. You will stand before God. What do you know of his word? What do you know of his son? What do you know of him? When you stand before Jesus, it is just you and him. And you are responsible to have seen the light. Well, what do we do then? Well, we, we don't rest until we know Jesus. We, we search, we study, we investigate, we pray, we humble ourselves, and we ask the Lord to reveal himself to us. And that's the great key of all. The great key of all is Jesus Christ and his grace. None of us are clever enough or good enough to sort it all out on our own. But if we truly ask God for grace, he gives it to us. If we ask God for help, he provides it. If we really want to see, God opens the eyes of our hearts so that we can see. God is at work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives to lead us to him. If we will humble ourselves and come into the light. And if you do, there there is not anyone who I have ever met who has truly come into the light who has said they have preferred their darkness. I have never met anyone 
who has truly walked with Jesus Christ in fidelity and faithfulness and truth, who has said they preferred their old ways over the new life and light they find in Jesus. So let's take this seriously. There are people who are condemned. There are people who Jesus pronounces woes of judgment upon. But there are also people marvelously saved by grace to live and walk in the light of Jesus. And it's the most marvelous thing you can ever possibly experience. It's the most marvelous thing that can ever happen to you is to come and truly know the light of God in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.